Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. Very special panel today that we're going to spend the entire hour looking at the Emoji Movie. Is it ruining <laughs> Hollywood? Did the Emoji Movie ruin Hollywood? We're going to talk about that with my guest, Peter Howell. He is the president of the Toronto Film Critics Association. He is the uh, film writer for the Toronto Star. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the author of Movies I Can't Live Without, Classic Films Reviewed. It's available online at starstore.ca or in person at the Tiff Bell Lightbox bookstore if you happen to be listening in Toronto. Andrew Parker is here. Andrew writes for the Globe and Mail. He writes for uh, about a thousand websites. Uh, every Friday, I look forward to your review dump on <laughs> on Facebook uh, and just a mind-boggling array of, of people that you write for. Uh, tell me some of the names. Uh, I primarily write for The Gate mm -hmm. and uh, Toronto Film Scene and a little bit, uh, like you said, for the Globe and Mail, a little bit for the Boston Globe in the U.S., yep. and pretty much anyone who will cut a check right Anyone, yeah, freelance life is uh, <laughs> always take, you know, it's the ATM theory of how to make a living, always take the money. That's what Never I said. Never turn it down unless you can afford it. <laughs> That's right. That's Wise right. men. <laughs> so we're not really going to talk about the Emoji movie, although I'm sure it will come up. Did either of you see it? I saw it. You saw I it. Saw I, did, I did not see it gratefully. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. here's the thing. It wasn't screened for the press. And so typically what I would have done in that case is go see it on the Friday when it opened. But I was out of town and, it, and, and dodged a bullet, I yeah. think, by not doing that. Uh, Andrew, just a you know, one or two liner on what you thought of the Emoji movie. It's not good, Richard. Okay. Well, it's, that's... <laughs> it's really not good. Uh, I saw it on a Friday afternoon with a bunch of families, right. and not even the kids were laughing, so yeah. I think that says all that you really need to say. Well, it's interesting because we're going to spend the hour actually talking about film criticism and kind of its place in the world a little bit and what it's like to do this job, because it's a weird job. Uh, Peter's done it for longer than I have. I'm 20-something years in. I'm on 21 years. So. 21. Yeah. We're about the same yeah. then, yeah. and Andrew, yeah. you've been doing it for... By, I, by definition, I've been doing it as long as you guys have because I actually started in high school doing, wow. doing film criticism so I'm even I'm pushing 20 years yeah. at this point yeah. so and so so we've got uh, 60 years experience yeah, <laughs> talking about this but it's a weird job it is a weird job and it's changed a lot over the last little while and one of the things that uh, has come up is that Rotten Tomatoes is uh, sort of ruining the way that studios are marketing their movies now the Emoji movie is yeah. one of those ones that they're suggesting uh, you know, is is kind of leading the way. So Baywatch gets a terrible Rotten Tomato score, and all of a sudden, you know, it doesn't make any money, and the studios are blaming Rotten Tomatoes and the evil film critics. I say make better movies. Yeah, exactly. And you know, did you remember, do you remember the line from Spinal Tap where they're trying to figure out by the band why they're not being successful? <laughs> they said it can't be the music. <laughs> We've got the music down cold. There must be something else. I mean, that, that's what I think. Of. There's always there's always a villain when when you have a bad movie, right? Well, there is, and and so studios are fighting back against the headline of the Hollywood Reporter. Studios are fighting back against withering Rotten Tomato scores. And by fighting back, what it means is that they're screening movies a little bit later and later. Uh, and that means that the Rotten Tomato scores won't go up until people have already bought tickets until it hits the weekend. So essentially what they're trying to do is fool you into going to see these movies yeah. when they know they've got a stinker. Like, um, I would argue the dark... Uh, Tower is probably one of those emoji oh, yeah. movie Baywatch. Uh, Andrew, do you? I mean, what's your take on the whole Rotten Tomatoes thing? 
I'm not a big fan of it because I think it boils film criticism down simply into a number and it's way more nuanced than that. Uh, but do you, I mean, do you ever go there? Do you ever check? I mean, I check every now and then, but I've always resisted even being on Rotten Tomatoes. I've had the opportunity to go on there a few times yeah. and I've always turned it down. Because as a, I as just, a critic, yeah. I just don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to contribute to a number, especially if you look closer at a lot of these Rotten Tomatoes scores and you look at some of even just the blurbs that they include on there are like, it says fresh, but this is a pretty middling blurb yeah. that basically just says, uh, it's okay. I think the best example that I could give was, uh, I remember a few years ago, I was looking up the Matthew McConaughey movie, The Lincoln Lawyer, oh, yeah. which I didn't particularly like, but it had an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. But if you looked at every blurb, almost across the board, everyone was like, this is an okay movie. This is fine. Um, but I also think that studios are being really disingenuous when it comes to their hate of Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. because as much as they hate it and they think that it's driving down their profits, you will see five or six trailers a day where they will be touting a positive Rotten Tomatoes score. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, listen, everyone's happy when yeah. the Rotten Tomato score is 85 or exactly. more. Yeah. Yeah. Can, no can, one has can anything I defend to Rotten Tomatoes? Sure. Sure. I, I've been with it right from the beginning. I mean, they, they didn't give you an option. They just used your stuff, right? And I've, and I've actually interviewed the guys. And, and uh, the, the benchmark, the reason it works for me, the benchmark is 60%, which right. I think is pretty high. You have to be over 60% to be rated positive. Right. So I think if it was 50%, I would be very much against it. because So you see a lot of movies that are 59 that don't that don't get the fresh thing. So I think, they're, I think they're discerning that way. And the quotes I think they use generally are fair. I mean, it's been rare that they've used one for me that I haven't been happy with. So. Uh, yeah, I was just going to yeah. say, but but it has happened. Probably. Oh yeah, occasionally. Yeah. But it happens with studio things as well. I mean, studios yeah. used to do a lot of ads, newspaper ads, and they invariably took the one line you were most embarrassed about. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they'd pull a quote, and there'd be the yeah. ellipsis on it. Yeah. So you would have written, you know, something like, uh, I don't know, you know, this movie is laughably bad in almost every way, and it would be this movie is laughably dot 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 in every way or something. They would laughable in every way. Yeah. And so uh, it, that wasn't actually all that sort of accurate either. But Rotten Tomatoes, I don't know. For me, I don't ever go to it as a as a site in terms of of looking for recommendations, but a lot of people do. Yep. Um, so let's talk a little bit. With that out of the way, let's talk a little bit about uh, just what it is uh, to be a film critic. And I think that we're coming at it from three different ways. You are... Andrew, primarily online, although in the Boston Globe and the Globe and Mail yeah, as well. Yeah, I've, I've, I've dabbled a little bit in every every sector, but predominantly yeah. online. Yeah, and and Peter is predominantly print, yeah. and I'm predominantly television and radio. So I thought we'd sort of have a look at, um, you know, sort of how it happens. What's the process? So, Peter, we'll start with you. What's the process? Every week, this week, there are seven or eight movies that sort of required my attention. Will you review? How many will you review? Well, I, I, I estimated. I, I think I write about five, but I often see seven or more. I mean, there's a lot of prep work, as you know. Like if there's a, if, if there was a Dark Tower prequel, you'd sort of feel obliged to have to see it if you haven't seen it already. So there's a lot of homework involved, which I'm not sure people ever appreciate. And why should they? Right? They're just they're just moviegoers. But I know the star did this uh, interview with me as well. And and the way, the way there's sort of a pecking order. Like you you can't not do the Transformers movie, even yeah. though you don't want to, because it's so huge. It's playing in so many multiplexes, right? But then usually the cool stuff is playing at like one theater. Yeah. I'm not sure, but is Detroit doing it multiple theaters this, this week or just one? I, I mean, I, I think Detroit is a bit more of a wide release. Slightly, slightly more wide. Yeah. yeah. And it's a good yeah. movie. It's yeah. sort of, it, it, it yeah. needs that, but it's also the kind of movie that will benefit, I think, from word of mouth. And that's why you sort of, yeah. you start on a handful of screens and then people talk about it and you open yeah. it a little bit more wide. So Andrew, you kind of see everything. <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really true. Like when I say everything, there are, there are weeks that 
I'll write seven reviews and I'll look at your stuff and you've written eight or ten or nine or whatever, way more. How do you juggle that? I mean, it's it's all a matter of time management when you work sort of as prolifically as I do as a, when I interviewed Peter Bogdanovich, I think that was the only thing they said. He's like, I've looked at your work. You're very prolific. <laughs> so I don't, I don't really know what to take of that, but I, I, I'll always remember that. But I, I do, think Bogdanovich is that was praise. So. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, so yeah. too. Um, but it's, it's interesting because you just don't, you don't have time to do everything in a week because no. we, we work in a city where there are routinely 12 to 14 yeah. to 15 movies out every week. I will admittedly miss about two or three of those that I just can't get around to. And usually those are the ones that end up going straight to VOD as well as like a very brief theatrical run at yeah. one local cinema and nowhere else in the country. And I try to steer clear of that. But if it's a major independent film or a major release, I usually go out of my way to do it. And it's just a matter of sort of breaking it down because I think a lot of people don't realize that in some of these cases we see the films a week or two out yeah. of the actual release date, which make things a lot easier so I can prepare those uh, over a bit longer of a time frame. But as we were discussing, you have things like The Dark Tower or Baywatch, which will be screened on a Wednesday and it opens technically the next day because everything opens on a Thursday now. Yeah. Nothing opens on a Friday. It's always like these major releases yeah. with Thursday night openings. We, we so still, we still really pretend it opens Friday. Yeah, yeah. we, well, we, st I, we, I, we I do, do our best yeah. to pretend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I post the reviews uh, on on social media on Fridays because that's kind of, you know, yeah. um, um, ancient and that's what I feel. Tradition. That's what I feel they should. It's a tradition. But they go up on my website on Thursdays. Yeah. And and I, I'm always sort of interested to see what gets the most hits. And invariably, it's not the thing that I think it's going to be. Yeah. And, you know, The Dark Tower, uh, my review of that this week will likely get a bunch of hits just because I think people are curious about it. Not curious enough to, curious enough to go, I don't think, but because I, I don't think people are going to go to this. But I think they're curious just to see what, you know, what I, what I thought or what we all thought of it. I'm not sure that uh, that will be the most read, though. I have a feeling that something like Brigsby Bear, which is a small, kind of quirky, weird you, little movie. Do you really movie. think so? Because I, I think I think the people love pans. I mean, I don't go out of my way to pan a movie, yeah. but I, I find I get the most reaction to movies that I hate. I the mean, thing about a pan, yeah. though, is I think a pan is much like a movie that works by word of mouth. You don't know something's a pan until someone tells you, oh, have you seen so-and-so's yeah. pan of this? It's great. And I think unless you're, like, reading it and it's some it's from someone that you read on a regular basis, you have to wait for someone else to tell you that this review I'm, I'm, is really great. You know, it's word of mouth to the speed of Twitter. I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're leaving the theater last night. We were there. You know, well, I think there was an embargo, but um, for us there was. Yeah, yeah people will, will, will be tweeting almost immediately after. The, was there an the embargo? Yeah, there was an embargo. I think it was eleven o'clock. We uh, left the theater because it's yeah. only a ninety-five minute movie. We were out of there by nine by eight thirty. Yeah. yeah. And we were not allowed to talk about it publicly until 11 p.m. Yeah. So we had, we had a chance to collect our thoughts. Yes, really ruminate on that one. <laughs> yeah, The Dark Tower. Well, uh, everyone's going to be reviewing that sort of over, you know, over this weekend. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about The Dark Tower a little bit because uh, Andrew kind of liked it. And I'm, I'm curious as to why. I couldn't wait to read the review, but.
but I'm not going to. I want to know. Great cliffhanger. In, <laughs> I want to know why. Um, I also uh, want to talk about uh, how many, you know, exactly how many movies do you review? How many movies do you watch at a film festival? And is there a point where it becomes kind of diminishing returns when you see too many movies uh, in too short a space of time? Uh, when we come back with my guests, Andrew Parker and Peter Howell. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. In studio, I have Peter Howell. He's the author of Movies I Can't Live Without. Uh, it's available online at starstore.ca or in person if you're in Toronto at the Tiff Bell Lightbox Bookstore. He's also the president of the Toronto Film Critics Association and uh, the film writer for the Toronto Star. Uh, Peter, or Peter, Peter Howell. Welcome. welcome. I, I was going to call you, Peter, as well. <laughs> Peter Andrew Parker is also here. That's a classy name. Yeah, Peter and, Parker yeah, is a yeah, very classy yeah, that's, name. That's right. Yeah, Andrew Parker yeah. is also here. You read him in the Globe and Mail, the Boston Globe, uh, at the Gate. Uh, lots and lots and lots, hundreds. How many film reviews do you figure you've written? Oh, geez, thousands, thousands, yeah. thousands. 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 At one yeah. time, We've I actually got, yeah. I got yeah. motivated enough to try to count, and I think I got to about maybe two thousand two, and I had to stop. Yeah, yeah. Rotten Tomatoes, by that Rotten point, Tomatoes actually too counts much. for you. If you look on them, there's, uh, they, they, I, don't, I don't know how comprehensive it is, but yeah. they actually have a count in there, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking mm. with someone last night about uh, the, the different kinds of, of, of jobs that you get, the gigs that you get. And, you know, I would think that uh, Andrew and I being freelancers and you being a staff person mm -hmm. and sort of one of the, the last remaining staff people, I think, yeah, I know it's in terms of film <laughs> kind of critics in town. Yeah, it must be. <laughs> yeah. The the, the uh, film critic staff meetings must be uh, yes. lonely and, you know, kind of... Uh, the food's not as good as it used to be, I'm sure. No, actually, it's better. I want to say, since I've been president, the food has been better. <laughs> but um, so there are certain gigs, like as freelancers, that, that just aren't worth it. So if you have a film retrospective playing and you have to see 12 movies and write one article about it, from a time management point mm -hmm. of view, that's just kind of not worth it. Uh, but Peter, that's the kind of thing that you can do as a staff person, right? Well, yes and no. It's just that we, we, we are, our resources are shrinking as well. I mean, like everybody in the media business is feeling that uh, does, they don't, they can't do everything. And also Toronto, uh, Toronto conspires to make everything bigger, longer, yeah, yeah. you know. I'm so grateful that, that TIFF is actually downsizing a bit this year because it feels like we can actually cover it more conveniently. Yeah, the Toronto International Film Festival yeah. is sh is shrinking by yeah. about 20%, I right. think. And wisely, it, wisely so. Wisely so, because yeah. it was getting a little bit bloated. Yeah. But it, it for us, what that means is that you can actually, we probably won't see any more movies, but uh, it will be just more manageable, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think the key word here is curation. I mean, yeah. what, what we all do as critics, it's not about how many movies we see. You know, it's it's how which are the best ones are, and you know which ones are worthy of our time. I mean, that that's time management, as you were saying earlier on. It's it's like you want to cover the heavy ones. You have to do Transformers, yeah. whether you want to or not, and the Emoji Movie things like that. But you want to tell people about the good stuff they might otherwise miss, and that's where the trick comes in, right? So, Andrew Parker, yes. you liked The Dark Tower. And The Dark Tower, for people who don't know, is Idris Elba, Matthew McConaughey. It's based on a series of books from Stephen King. There's eight of them. They are big bestsellers. They uh, have won awards. To my mind, this should have been like a Game of Thrones or Westworld television series. You could create that world, this fantasy world, and there's a few of them. Like, I found myself kind of getting lost in the movie because the characters uh, have different names uh, depending on what world they're in and <laughs> yeah. there's a bunch of different worlds and it just kind of all of a sudden just felt like a wall to me, a wall that I wasn't able to climb over. Um, but 
They've made it into a movie. It's 95 minutes, which... That's the best part about it. That's the best part about it. Even the best I, part even about I it is that it's not 96 that. minutes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it's but actually 88 it. if you chop the, uh, the, chop credits. the credits off. It times yeah, in right. at a nice 88 minutes. <laughs> it keeps getting better. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So what, what, Andrew, was it that you enjoyed about that movie? I think a big part of it is I'm just kind of frustrated with something that you sort of touch upon, which is sort of this desire to turn everything into Game of Thrones, right. which is just to make it this bloated frame franchise um and there's something about the dark tower which is a silly movie when you boil it down but it's a very simple silly movie that's sort of spawned from this massive mythology and i like how it's able to make everything sort of concise and it doesn't really care if you're following along because the plot is very simple stop matthew mcconaughey from unleashing darkness on the world it's very simple It's it's a very good you know very Easy story, but yeah, but, but he, what, he's got to be the laziest killer in the world, though. He says, "Stop breathing." Yeah, right? yeah, stop no, breathing. That's he, all he, he can go kill to sleep. people with the words "stop breathing," and he seems to work remotely. He works from his evil lair, except uh, when he wants short. to pop up in your kitchen to make chicken. Yeah, yeah. there's a very interesting scene in the film where uh, he goes after this kid that he's tracking, and he goes to visit his parents, and he's just in the kitchen cooking chicken with an apron on. Yeah, which is a bit bizarre. But and, I mean, and I, then I he like says, that though. Uh, I hope it's not a problem. We don't have chicken where I come from. <laughs> But the weird thing... So weird. Like, it's such a weird scene. The weird thing about it, though, is I would prefer a film that's made up of all those disjointed scenes that don't really fit together but still follow the same plot line than sit through five more minutes of another Transformers movie or another Pirates of the Caribbean film. I'll agree with that. I mean, um, I'm speaking with uh, Peter Howell from the Toronto Star and Andrew Parker from the Globe and Mail. Um, Listen... I agree with that 100%, mm-hmm. but there's some little things about this movie that drove me crazy. Matthew McConaughey, by and large, I found <laughs> he was he was sort of fell somewhere in between being too campy and being like completely disengaged from the material. I, I just yeah. thought he was playing his Lincoln car salesman. I was just yeah. waiting for a moment where he turned to one of his henchmen and just said, maybe you should. I, I thought <laughs> I was, I just thought he was for uh, auditioning for a Zoolander sequel, you know, walking yeah. around in that, uh, you know, blue steel. Yeah, the blue steel thing. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and he said, uh, he kept saying things like the other character, his nemesis is Roland. And he keeps saying things like, Roland is immune to my magics with an S. <laughs> And for some reason, I found that annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. It's, it's hard to be scared of a guy called Walter. You it know, is. If you've ever been terrified Walter. by Walter, I don't think I ever have. The movie even makes yeah. fun of him. When the yeah. kid learns that his name is Walter, yeah. suddenly he's not terrifying anymore. <laughs> so when we come back, we've got about a minute here, and I'll start this here, but how much criticism do you get for your criticism? So on Twitter, you write, you know, you write a review, you link to it, we all do it. Uh, and then you get blowback sometimes. And I'm curious when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what happens because this is such a subjective kind of job we have. One of the great things about it is that no one's ever right or wrong, really. I mean, yeah. you know, you are completely wrong about the Dark Tower, but, but that's uh, okay. Only we, a little wrong. We, <laughs> a little wrong. We, we forgive you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. But it is, I mean, it, it, it's funny because you can, uh, th- there is no right or wrong with this. It, it's completely 100%. Uh, opinion-based, but man, the blowback that comes back sometimes when you write something about The Dark Tower, I'm sure that I'll take some heat for my one-star review uh, of that movie this weekend from people who love the books who haven't seen the movie yet, all that kind of thing. So when we come back with Peter Howell, movie critic, 
Critic and the president of the Toronto Film Critics Association, author of Movies I Can't Live Without, and writer for the Toronto Star, and Andrew Parker uh, from the Globe and Mail, from thegate.com, all of those, and, and many other places too. Uh, we're going to talk about that, and um, I want to talk about whether you've ever had any pressure from a studio uh, once you've written a bad review of one of their movies. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. In studio, Andrew Parker is here. Andrew Parker, you've read online at places like The Gate. You see him in print in the Boston Globe and the Globe and Mail. He's a film critic. Joining him is the president of the Toronto Film Critics Association, Peter Howell, uh, also the author of Movies I Can't Live Without, a collection of essays that is available at the starstore.ca or in person, if you're in Toronto, at the Toronto uh, or the Tiff Bell Lightbox bookstore. Uh, also, Peter writes for the Toronto Star. So when we left, um, I asked a couple of questions about criticism of your criticism. So, Peter, what kind of response do you get? You're, the Star is... Uh, the It's the big... You know, it's funny. You, the, prior to email, I used to get a lot of phone calls. Yeah. And then I got a lot of email when email be, was sort of in vogue for about, I guess, about 10 years. And then, then it's been things like Twitter where people just yeah. sort of blast it all out there. And do it fast. <clears throat> and do it very fast. And, 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 and I think Twitter, unfortunately, has coarsened the discourse. Yeah. I mean, it just it's people reacting a lot of times without thinking. And, and to a movie they haven't seen yet. Yeah. Well, even J.K. Rowling was caught this week responding to something about Donald Trump, and she had to climb down when she realized she completely misconstrued. And, and that it was wrong, that, that he had ignored a, a young boy yeah. in a wheelchair, right? right? And, and, and having to apologize to Donald Trump has got to be humiliating. Yeah, it, it yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, and because and, you'll yeah. get into little wars. You got into a war <laughs> with Will Poulter, right? I From, sure did. Yeah. Detroit star Will Poulter. Yes. Wow. Okay, so... Let, let's let's detail that a little bit. So it was one of the Maze Runner movies. It right? was the first Maze Runner movie, and and you wrote a bad review about it. I wrote a scathing <laughs> review of it. Uh, it was it was one of those scorched earth kind of <laughs> reviews where there's no nothing positive can right. be found in it. And and somehow, I mean, he was probably you must have hashtag the movie or whatever. He he saw it. And came after you. And then all his fans kind of came after you. So describe what that day was like. That was a very interesting day because I was actually, I had filed the review. It went up on a Thursday morning and I was at a press screening that Thursday night. And when I went into the screening, everything was fine. And then when I left, I had over 4,000 notifications (laughs) on my phone. And I had no idea what it was. And... I'm getting all these like texts from friends like Will Poulter wants to fight you right now. <laughs> and I was like, what's going on? And it's it was so surreal to see that happen. Um, but honestly, that was sort of a teachable moment for the both of us, because privately, uh, Will Poulter reached out to me. and He's like, look, man, I was mad about the review and I think you're wrong. He's like, I didn't realize this was going to right, happen. He was right. like, I was mad at you. I didn't want everyone else to jump down your throat. Yeah. And I'm I'm fine in situations like that. I think if you're an artist, I actually appreciate if you want to come after something that I said because you want to defend your work, that's your right. You yeah. made it. And to a certain extent, if you feel like you have something impassioned to say about it, fine. I have no problem with that because you made it. Um, 
And sometimes when people give me feedback on a review that they don't like or they don't agree with, sometimes there's something constructive in there. For the most part, there's usually not anything constructive that can be said yeah. when you're trying to critique someone else's review unless you want to draw on specifics. Like you were wrong about this one aspect that you right. talked about not liking, uh, but you were right about this thing. And I think that's constructive, but that never happens because, as Peter was saying, Twitter has sort of coarsened that discourse to a point where – Everyone just takes one really quick parting jab and then that's it. Yeah, it's and then not run even away. Yeah. it's not even an argument yeah. at that point. Yeah. It's just someone that's just talking some smack and then just running away. Yeah. It really is like birds tweeting on a you know an overhead wire. Yeah. 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 Very appropriately you, named site. Have has your idea about a movie ever changed because people have come at you? You know, not that I can think of. I mean, I, I, sometimes, you know, you might be a one-star difference. You'll see something at a festival, and right. then you'll talk to people on Reader's or Somebody will contact you, and you, you might. But I, it's, I can't even think of an example where I've gone from hating it to loving it in yeah. a big space. I mean, the closest is probably um, this story, which actually ended up on Wikipedia at one point, was uh, The Big Lebowski. I was at the world premiere at Sundance in 98, and I was underwhelmed when I saw it because I was comparing it too much to Fargo. Right. And, and I wrote, a, I wrote a, you know, and I, I detected a lot of people walking out, which I don't think, you know what festivals are like, right? So yeah. they, I remember that. And, part, say, this, and the thing yeah. about people walking out at festivals, though, is that they could be could running be, to another yeah, screening. Exactly. They could be, they're exactly. industry people that they watch half an hour of a movie and they're like, we're not going to buy this. Yeah. We're out. Yeah. So. And, and it's something you learn, right? But uh, it's funny, that's the rare example where the studio rep in Toronto phoned me up, woke me up because there's time zone difference the next morning and was blasting me about it. But I said, you know, I... I I didn't hate the movie. I just wasn't. Actually, it's now one of my favorite movies. It would be in an, it would be in a future edition of this book because I really love it. But it just it was one of those movies that just took a while to grow on you. But uh, you know that that's just the way things go. I'm speaking with Peter Howell from the Toronto Star and Andrew Parker from thegate.com. Um, have you, so you got a phone call from a studio. Yeah, it's very rare that happens. Though. It's very rare yeah, in my, extremely yeah. rare. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. have had a conversation not that long ago where I was asked, hey, what are you ever going to like one of our movies? And wow. that, yeah, and that was um, sort of said in jest, but you know that oh, yeah. there was a, a, yeah. a, you know, a reason. Words have power. You, and you, that you was a reason. Nobody likes criticism, whether right. you call it constructive or other. And, and when I'm talking about us as well. Nobody likes criticism. It's something you always have to know. Like people pretend, oh, I don't mind you taking your best shot, but they do mind. <laughs> they do. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think that they do. Andrew, have you yeah. had people come at you from the studios? Not really. I mean, most of what I get is sort of what you were talking about with, like, these sort of passing glances, especially yeah. if, like, sometimes studio people will peg you as the kind of person that will like a certain type of yep, movie. absolutely. And then when you don't like it, they're like, why didn't you like it? And it's just, it's sort of like this weirdly needy thing sometimes. Just this neediness to be liked. And it, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, you can argue the value of one voice versus the voice of hundreds. But at the same time, it's just so off-putting to, to get someone say... I, I hoped you would like this more than you did. It's like, it's that thing with your parents. It's like, I'm not mad at you. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> yeah. What I find, uh, I'll often get a pitch that will say, uh, you know, when we saw this, we thought of you. And and we just we, we just thought you would yeah. love this. And then you see it, and it's like a, you know, a bestiality pedophile movie. And I'm like, why would you think that I would like this? What it, is it about edgy. that movie that, <laughs> yeah. that made yeah, you we, think we, of me? You, you also know there's the studio ambush outside of every screening where they, yeah. they try and grab you the moment you walk out and thoughts, 
a question mark like that, that is yeah. my least favorite yeah. part of, yeah. of of this job and I mean listen none of us are digging ditches for a living and I get that but it yeah. is an interesting thing people ask me all the time about what it's like to do this job so in this hour I thought we'd spend some yeah. time yeah. to talk about it one of the things that I really hate is being asked what I think about movies one second yeah. after I've seen them and yeah. uh, the studio publicist will stand outside of the screening room, literally as you walk out. The first daylight you've seen in two hours uh, is, uh, you know, one of their faces saying, "So, what did you think?" And and yeah. it, I haven't had time to process it yet. I, I have a line now. I just say, "Thank you for showing that to us." <laughs> it, that yeah. actually got me into almost trouble last week, like very recently. Um, because it happened when I left the press screening for Good Time, yeah. which is a Robert Pattinson film that's coming out. Right. And when I first left the theater, I really did not like it. I was just sort of put off by it. And then I didn't directly say it, but I was talking to other people on the way out, other critics, because sometimes that happens. Like you just get yeah. caught in like a gaggle of critics. Yeah on the way out there talking about these films that we just watched. And I think she got the vibe that I just immediately did not like it. And then when I left and I started walking home, I started piecing the movie together and I started actively thinking about it. And by the time I got home, I realized that I kind of liked it and that there was something there and that I thought it through more. And then I, I sent an email back and I'm not afraid to do this sometimes. But I'm like, look, I know you probably think that I didn't like the movie, but I thought about it and I, I actually do. I just needed time to think about it. And I think that's the danger of cornering someone mm -hmm. as soon as something ends, because when you ruminate on something and you let it stew, your opinion could still go either way. You could think of something that didn't make sense that really bothers you in an otherwise entertaining movie, or you can find something that was secretly brilliant that you didn't realize before that you couldn't define. So I think that's just one of the worst things. But I mean, in, in some ways, it's not necessarily the fault of the person standing outside the door because there's someone above them oh, telling no, it's them not their fault. to do that in the first place. I, I just yeah. don't like it. So yeah. when we come back, we're going to talk about franchise fatigue with my guest, Peter Howell, and Andrew Parker. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. We've been spending the hour with Peter Howell, film critic, president of the Toronto Film Critics Association, writer for the Toronto Star, and Andrew Parker, writes for the Globe and Mail and thegate.com. We've been talking about film criticism. I get asked probably more than any other thing, well, two things. So what's your favorite movie? And what's it like being a film critic? What, <laughs> what kind of job is that? Because it's a weird kind of job. There's probably never been more film critics than there are right now because of the internet. There's probably mm -hmm. never been more not making a living yeah, because, <laughs> because, right because now, of the internet. Because of the internet. When Yelp starts doing film reviews, we're all done. We're doomed. all done. Yeah, we're all done. And now you've put it out in the world and you've given someone an idea. Thanks sorry, so much. Sorry for costing Andrew. us our jobs, Richard. <laughs> uh, but so we've been talking uh, about how we choose movies, you know, how we respond to things. Um, some of the big kind of issues that are out there right now, uh, there's a thing called franchise fatigue. Why big movie sequels are underperforming at the box office. So you've got uh, the latest Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Number five, right? Yeah. yeah. It, but yeah. With, after a break of yeah. you know two or three years, it right. comes back, underperforms. You've got uh, a lot of films that have come out this year that looked at the beginning of the summer like they were going to be big hits, and they haven't. And I think that part of it is... Uh, brand 
tiredness. We're just tired of everything with a two in the title and all that kind of thing. I also think, quite honestly, there's too damn many movies being <laughs> released. I think that, you know, years ago, if you'll think back, and I don't want to sound like, you know, the grand old man, but, you know, there were weeks when there'd be like one or two movies coming out, and you actually had a chance to see them, think about them, and write about them now. Uh, as I was walking down Young Street yesterday to go see The Dark Tower, a movie that will be immediately forgotten about, <laughs> yeah. um, there was a big billboard for War of the Planet of the Apes. And my wife said, ah, oh, remember that? I'm like, it was two <laughs> weeks ago. Yeah. You know, it wasn't that long ago. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and we're, we're just inundated with these big movies that we're all supposed to be excited about. And I think it's too much, Peter. Well, you remember, yeah, you're exactly right. You know, but there's also the strange thing happening, which is sort of preemptive franchise fatigue. Because, you know, for example, uh, Luc Besson's Valerian in yeah. the City of a Thousand Planets. Too long, too messy. I kind of liked it, but I, it, it basically tanked. And I think part of it was that people are just getting kind of sick of these gigantic, sprawling movies that don't, don't just exist simply to sell you know, meals and things. Well, and that's what it kind of feels yeah. like to me is a movie like Valerian didn't really do anything other yeah. than, you know, sort of guarantee your eyeballs were going to dance for a little while exactly. while you were in the theater, yeah. but that was it. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, are you tired of the franchise? I think the thing when it comes to franchise fatigue is I think in a lot of these cases, you're only as good as your previous installment. And right. I think when you look at things like Pirates of the Caribbean or Transformers, they reflect negatively on anything else that's trying to be a franchise. Right. I mean, you could point to the success of things like Marvel or what Disney's doing by rebooting all of their animated properties. But there's too much of that and there's too little originality out there. And I think that's why you get things like the John Wick franchise, which right. is a franchise that kind of grew organically, sort of came out of nowhere, that no one really had any designs that it was going to be much of anything. And I think you have a good example like that, but you also have a bad example in something like Valerian, which is trying to do a similar sort of world-building thing and just failing at it. Yeah. But everyone wants that franchise, and you're only as good as the previous entry. So I think what happens is when you have franchises like Transformers and Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, everyone remembers that the movie that came before this one was bad. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they don't want to go through that again. And the thing is, is like when you force people into another situation, I think that's where critics do come in. And I think that to a certain degree, negative reviews did harm Pirates and Transformers yeah. because at that point, if the previous entry was bad and the public didn't like it, then they turn to the critics and say, well, is this one just as bad as the other one? And then they start listening to you. And that's something that I've sort of noticed is the critical numbers sort of line up with the public in that case. And in a lot of cases, the public sort of says that critics are out of touch. Well, I think when it comes to franchises, if the previous entry was a bust with critics, people still saw it. They're going to check with the critics on the next one. And I think that's really what's been happening with intellectual properties just across the board. I hope you're right, but there's a scary thing that happened this summer like with the movie like The Mummy, which is a really bad movie, yeah. where they actually you could actually see them inserting the next franchise piece with Russell Crowe in well, there. They, were, they, yeah. they, they didn't set out yeah. to make a franchise. They set out to build a yeah. universe. Yeah. And that's <laughs> like, you know, the, the movie business has changed so much. These movies cost so much money to yeah. make and, and the returns are in enormous if if you actually you know hit a, a vein of gold but if you don't uh you know, you're gonna lose them on a lot of money so it's not enough now just to have a franchise now you need a universe like the marvel universe where you've got all these movies splintering yeah. off everything has to connect everything has to connect which is like and the dark tower is based upon stephen king's multiverse which is basically him rehashing his all of his old novels which i don't think is a great strategy i don't either and yeah. and i i liked a movie called landline that's opening this weekend 
Jenny Slate. It's a small independent movie. It probably cost five or six million bucks to make. And I just wonder, and it's considered like a, a small kind of movie yep. that will play on two screens in, you know, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, probably in Ottawa. And that's about it. Likely. That's about it. Uh, yep. Which is a shame because it's a, it's a good movie that, you know, is worth the, the 10 or 12 bucks depending you know on on where what part of the country you're living in and how much it costs to go see a movie it's worth the money but the studios don't want to make those anymore yeah well, I, was, I was talking to andrew before we came in there of how there's a strange thing happening where everybody goes to see something in imax right or, or yeah. the bigger screen because they feel they have to but then when you go further down there the pecking order it's becoming more wait for netflix you know, it's, it's a real phenomenon it, it is except that yeah. dunkirk isn't going to look like anything on netflix no exactly uh, on television no matter but, how but, big but, your yeah. television yeah. is dunkirk, and how great uh, your dunkirk sound... is a good example because i think if it wasn't for the imaxing of it it could easily become one of those almost forgotten movies because war movies as a genre haven't exactly been the, the hottest seller lately right but uh, but to, to have that added attraction of a really great technological event, like a, almost a virtual reality experience, I think really added to it. Well, yeah. and I think that a, a movie like that really benefits from seeing it in the theater. A landline, yeah. eh, you can probably watch it at home. It's 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 not you know that cinematic, I suppose. But a movie like Dunkirk, uh, and I will actually say landline, I'll include that in there because <laughs> these are emotional experiences that you go to. The, there's a reason you go to the movies. It's hardwired into our DNA. You go to the movies so that you can. Uh, experience something with a group of strangers. Exactly. I mean, people forget that sometimes about movies is that it's the public event of communing with your yep. neighbors and friends and people you know. I mean, that's the real attraction of movies, I think, of just, it's just be part of a communal experience. It is, and it always has been. Yeah. I mean, from the time that people sat around campfires telling stories to hear their their other you know their friends laugh to you know the vaudeville and the Globe Theater and all that stuff. The idea of coming together to watch something as a as a community. I think is really important. And uh, I'm speaking about uh, film criticism and films with Peter Howell and Andrew Parker. Um, tell me, what, what's your take on that? I, Andrew, I think that it is important to go to the movies and see the, the, the movies the way the director wanted you to see them with the picture and the sound and all that stuff. I get a lot of blowback from that, though. Yeah, we, we're living in a really strange age right now. And this was also something that Peter and I were talking about before we came up here, which is that we've kind of lost. I forget who said it, but it, someone famous said that we've lost the mid-range movie. Yeah. We only have giant blockbusters that cost $100 million to make, or we have micro-budget indies that cost like a million or less to make. No one makes the 40 to $50 million yeah. dollar drama anymore. That's sort of a lost art. So because of that, Netflix, we, Netflix does. Yeah. We, we, yeah. we now and now, live and now in that. $20 billion yeah. Dollars yeah. in that though. <laughs> yeah. So now we live in this age where only the really cream of the crop films even get screened for us critics in theaters. Yeah. Most of the time, and I know you guys can relate to this, we're sent an online link, yeah. usually on a service like Vimeo or through Netflix or Amazon or some other uh, streaming service. We'll send us a link and we watch it at home on a laptop or a television if our TV is a smart TV. Um, and it's just not the same. You nope. definitely lose something because you... I think when I started out as a film critic, I think the actual experience of being in the theater 
is something that can't be replicated. And to this day, I still cherish that experience. When I went to see The House, which was a terrible <laughs> Will Ferrell movie that was not press screened for critics, I saw it at a public screening and no one was laughing. And I cherish the experience of being there because someone had snuck a beer can into the theater. And I... <laughs> It was the only funny part of the movie, and it was the only time anyone laughed. Someone accidentally knocked the beer can over, and it started very slowly uh, bouncing down awesome. the stairs yeah. of the theater. And everyone was so done with the movie yeah. that they just started paying attention to this can, and they were cheering for the can yeah. because it was moving so slowly that we were so invested in this can <laughs> not making it to the front of the theater that we just focused all our attention on that. And when it did reach the front of the theater thunderous applause and then for the rest of the house nobody laughed at anything so i think that's a good example of a case where you really do need the theatrical experience or it's just not the same thing so when people come to you and say oh my daughter wants to be a film critic my son really loves movie he wants to be a film critic i say start a blog yes that's exactly what i say as well i get i get asked this question all the time yeah, like literally all the time and i always say to people you know what you should do go see a movie and then immediately go home or to a coffee shop or something and write your review right then yeah. and try that a few times and see whether you enjoy the experience and if you don't then that tells you something and if you do that tells you something as well yeah anthony lane uh who famous film critic says that he either has to write the review in 24 hours or he waits 24 years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Interesting you're, way you're giving yeah. your gut yeah. feeling or, you know, yeah. long contemplation. Yeah, and I think film criticism is one of those things that, you know, you can say you can go to school for it. And there are a lot of different approaches. You have people that write sort of as consumer advocates. You yeah. have people that write more academically. No matter what style of film criticism you want to attempt or if you want to go into that field, it is one of those learn-by-doing jobs. Yep. You do not know how to do it until you do it yep. and you do it and you do it again. And you just sort of hone your voice and you know your own taste. You're at ease with your own taste. You're at ease with your own biases. And you just learn who you are through cinema. And that's yep. really the only way to, also, to people, nail it down. People learn who you are. You know, I mean, what I always yeah. say, the single most important thing is to be honest. If, yeah. if you start writing something because you feel you should, nope. or you, Honesty is people the only... see through that. Yep. So they may not agree with you, but you hopefully they will respect you that you've at least been honest. And they get to know you, right? Oh, he always hates that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Or he always likes that kind of thing. So that, yeah. I think that I think that's a value. And it's, it's a hard yeah. thing to really nail down because I mean, I I always tell people this whenever someone says that they want to be a film critic, I say that there are only three kinds of films that are ever really truly worth talking about and that are fun to write about: the great films, the terrible films, and the films that have a little bit of potential but get some stuff wrong because there are things there that you can talk about. Yeah, they're the hardest but to write about. The, the problem yeah. is. 80% of the movies that come out never fall into that category. They're just yeah. so middle of the road, perfectly competent. And those are the times where you have to really tap into your own honesty and go deep because those are the hardest things to write about because you don't have that reaction. And we have to leave it there. My guests in studio have been film critic Peter Howell from the Toronto Star and from The Gate and The Globe and Mail, Andrew Parker. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Andre and the board. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.